Welcome, uh, welcome to church. Uh, we're going to talk about church and mission today. Uh, two very, very huge uh, topics in the book of Acts. We made it up to the book of Acts in our journey through scripture, taking one book each week. And so today is just full of action uh, as we get into the book of Acts. And it's, it's challenging. I'm just going to sort of give that as a preface as we get started in this study of the book of Acts today. It's very challenging. Uh, there's grace that God gives to us to, uh, you know, receive that challenge, but I just want to throw that out there. There's challenge that's coming, not from me, per se, um, but it's coming from this book uh, called, called Acts. Let me start us with a couple of uh, theological type questions, and those would be, where is Jesus? I'll, I'll ask it again. Where is Jesus right now? And what is he doing there? Um, we're going to come to those questions in just a moment, but I'm, I'm wanting to go ahead and turn on your thinker and get, get you uh, thinking about where Jesus is and, and what is he even doing there. Um, I'm also going to start with a quote here from Eugene Peterson. Uh, he's talking about the Bible the journey of the Bible, where, where the whole story of the Bible is going. And he says, the Bible is not a script for a funeral service, but it's the record of God always bringing life where we expected to find death. Everywhere, it is the story of resurrection. That is incredible news, isn't it? That our main story, the Bible, our main text, is not one about uh, a eulogy. It's one about life. Uh, so today in our journey through scripture in Acts, let me just try to give a real quick narrative summary and then we'll get to our, um, our uh, selected passage. Uh, the author of Luke, this is, uh, we should be reminded, this is a two-volume set. Remember when we looked at the gospel according to Luke? Yes, the physician, the co-worker, the traveling assistant going around with Paul. That same author is the author of Acts. It's a unified joined work really called Luke Acts. And so um, many people would traditionally call this book Acts of the Apostles, right? You've probably heard it called that traditionally. Originally, that's not its name, but traditionally, that's what's happened among uh, readers is they call it Acts of the Apostles. Um, I'm trying to get us back to a more Jesus-centric understanding of the book of Acts, and it really should be called Acts of Jesus, Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. I think that's what's really happening in the book of Acts. Uh, original culture, there's a clash going on as you're getting into this book and as we're trying to get our mind around first century uh, Christianity, this uh, multi-directional movement that's happening, this gospel movement that's going into different nations. There's a clash of cultures that's going on between the early Christians and the Greek and Roman world. Um, places like Philippi, Athens, and Ephesus are all hyperlinks. Those uh, cities there in the Roman world about what would be taking place there. But there is um, a, a multi-ethnic, monotheistic Jesus communities that did not fit into the Roman way of life. We need to be reminded of that. Christians were uh, viewed with suspicion. They aroused suspicion. If you and I were... Jesus followers, during that time, we would have raised lots of suspicion. 
we would have been accused of treason against Caesar Augustus, um, the Roman emperor. And so as Paul uh, meets the risen Christ and encounters Christ after he raises from the dead, Christ makes appearances to different people. Paul is one of those people. This is Acts chapter 9, by the way. And has a personal encounter with Christ and he's changed forever. He gets converted. That's what happens for me and you. It may not be as dramatic as that. But essentially, that's what takes place. And as Paul is presenting Christ as superior to Caesar, this creates tension. This gets him uh, accused of being a dangerous social revolutionary. Um, he gets put in uh, prison. He's, he's arrested time and uh, over and over again. He's interrogated by the Roman officials, all because he's simply saying, uh, Christ is Lord. Christ is King. Uh, Christ whom was crucified, he's alive. Uh, that gets him thrown in prison. Um, eventually, he's transferred as a prisoner to Rome. And whenever he's there, he's in this like house arrest type thing. And even from there, he has guests, both Jewish guests and non-Jewish people, that visit him in that home. And you know what happens as they come and visit him in that home? They get converted. This is all happening right under the nose of Caesar. Uh, I'll read it. Uh, it's in chapter 28, the last chapter of the book of Acts, verse 31. Paul kept announcing the kingdom of God and boldly teaching all about the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So some of the unique features of this early church, um, it's a Jewish Messiah movement. That means they were monotheistic. Yet you didn't have to be Jewish. You didn't have to be from that nation to become a follower of Jesus. It is a multi-ethnic, multicultural, many different social classes that are being gathered into these Jesus communities that are springing up all over the known world of the Roman Empire. How is this even happening? They treated men, women, rich, poor, slave, free, all as equals. This is very curious, the Romans are thinking. Why are all people being treated equally? All of those Jesus followers gave their allegiance. They pledged glad allegiance to King Jesus, first and only. They were no military threat to Rome. <laughs> Jesus, their Lord and teacher, was teaching them peace. And another unique feature is that they were trusting in the empowerment of this spirit called Holy Spirit and guidance from this spirit. One last one I'll mention here um, as a distinct feature, and I invite you to Go back and look more of the distinct features of them there in the first century. But there was incredible opposition that they encountered as followers of Christ. Internally, there was conflict among them. Uh, externally, there was conflict, like uh, demonic, religious, political um, threats coming against them. Yet the historical and geographical scattering of these people and of the gospel is astounding. It's beautiful, powerful. Historians say by AD 600, the church had spread uh, from just that little Mediterranean world. It had spread to Northern Africa and Southern Europe. And the language was basically Greek. 
Uh, that's why we find our New Testament in Greek. And the movement was centered in Rome and Constantinople. It's wonderful how that happened, how there was a, it was of a spreading nature. By 1000 AD, the church had largely dispersed from northern Africa and the Middle East uh, as it faced um, surging Islam. And so the Christian church was then centered in Europe, which was largely Christian by 1500 AD. We've all read about this stuff, right? Um, present day, the Christian church is non-Western. No surprise. Or maybe that's news to some of you. It's the Christian church, the center of gravity is in Latin America and in Africa and in Asia right now. It's not in the United States. It's not a Western religion. It's not a white person's religion. This is a multi-directional, multi-ethnic, multicultural spreading of good news, being empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. Okay, a quick chapter breakdown. Uh, chapter 1, there's this introduction, and Jesus is going to give them promise of the Holy Spirit. He's picking up from his teaching in John chapter 14 and 16 about who this advocate and helper is truly going to be. And in saying that, he's going to give them a mission, his, like, his last words. And in giving them the mission, he wants to tell them that they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to all the earth. And so that's chapter 1. Chapters 2 through 7, it focuses on those places. Really cool what Luke does here. Chapters 2 through 7, he focuses on this. It's in Jerusalem, what's happening there. There's generosity among the people of God, this first century group that's coming together, and yet persecution. There's even martyrdom. There's a person named Stephen that's preaching and ends up getting stoned and martyred for his faith and the words that he's saying in that sermon. And all of this ends up, this persecution again in opposition, ends up sending them out to um, Judea and Samaria, as was promised. And that's chapters 8 through 12. He focuses on these places, Judea and Samaria. And this is truly beginning to show us that this is an international movement. It's happening. The land that Israel hated enemies, most of whom become followers of Christ. Maybe there's some reluctance to go to those places, as Jesus is saying, go to Samaria. Oh, those are our enemies. Yet most of those people become followers of Christ. Uh, Paul and Barnabas helped found a church in Antioch, which at that time was the largest cosmopolitan city in the Roman Empire. And so the first large multi-ethnic church isn't somewhere in Los Angeles right now or New York or even San Francisco. It was in the ancient world there in first century. This is happening then. It's beautiful. And so uh, from that place, there in Antioch, the first international missionaries were sent out. So again, today we're talking about church and we're talking about mission and we're going to begin to see that they're actually one and the same. Um, chapters 13 through 28, he's getting to those next places, the ends of the earth. That's where he focuses on that. And Paul and co-workers traveled to different cities in the Roman Empire announcing the good news that Jesus is king. The three basic missions that take place there, the first mission is Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. Then the second mission is through Asia Minor to ancient Greece, always sort of getting catapulted somewhere else. 
And then the third mission is back through Asia Minor and Greece again. So there's our narrative summary. A lot to take in, I told you. It's going to be challenging as we listen to this today about church and mission. And as we get ready to read our sample passage, I invite you to turn here. It's in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Troy, did you choose Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11? Because that's as far as your reading got you this week. Uh, No? Trust me on that one. Uh, We've been inviting everyone to read the Bible this year and every year. I commend that to you. I really do. It's spiritual food. It's, it's not words, but Christ is the word. And last one, we talked about Christ being the bread of life. That's our spiritual caloric intake. It's the word. And so, uh, yeah, let's read this. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything... Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. After giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit, during the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching. And they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here? Staring into heaven. Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We're going to look at uh, a new intimacy and a new mission and a new future that is given to us here in the book of Acts through the ascension of Christ and even through the giving of the Holy Spirit and us being sent out. St. Augustine once said of Jesus, you ascended from before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. It's powerful. We were grieving. I mean, imagine us. Imagine right now you and I in that story. Jesus is ascending. He's leaving us. And we start even remembering, oh no, he he told us, even as we were walking around with him and he was teaching us that he would be leaving us. Of course, he was referring to his crucifixion. Then he's leaving us again. We'd have trauma. We'd have trauma. We'd be stressed. We'd be very curious, where is Jesus? What is he doing there? Those are our questions. And you may be thinking, boy, this story of resurrection 
That was going a little too far, don't you think? And now you're saying that the one who was resurrected actually ascended, like physically rose from the dead? Are you kidding? The ascension that Jesus physically ascended into heaven. And as the passage said, are you really serious that this Christ is like physically going to return to this earth? We should know these weren't iffy claims to this group of what was called Christians there in first century. These weren't iffy claims. They were banking it all on the resurrection of Christ. They were, um, I mean, look at them here in verse six. I ask you to look at this. It says, they're asking this question. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, come on, so it's such a pitiful question, isn't it? He's, he's been telling them during his whole ministry what the kingdom of God is. And here they are, here they are still hoping he's going to wipe out the Romans somehow, give them some sort of political position, power, culturally, uh, economically, politically. And yet that's not what Jesus is talking about. I love in verse 7 how he, how he, how he responds. Um, it, the, the time and all of that is not for you to know. Only God knows that. And that's a sidebar note for you and me about how God's kingdom spreads to whom it spreads to is that God is the one that spreads his kingdom. Usually not in ways that we would choose. Usually involving characters that we could never imagine. That would be ourselves. A lot of us couldn't even imagine becoming a follower of Christ. What was on Jesus' mind Remember back to his model prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, if you're listening to this and you heard me say that our first point is a new intimacy, you might be thinking, how in the world does Jesus leaving his disciples give them intimacy? If you know anything about intimacy, I mean, the first... Part of intimacy is not only liking one another, but but you like one another's presence. There's close proximity together. How can the ascension unlock a new intimacy for us if Jesus is no longer with us? Go back in your minds to John 14, chapter 14 and 16, where Jesus, and I quote, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. No, I will never abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Remember what I told you. I'm going away, but I will come back to you again. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. Okay, now connect this back up to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. God is not offering them some consolation prize. I mean, imagine that, like, hey, this force, this thing called the Holy Spirit, it'll sort of hold them over until I can give them something better. That's not what God is up to. You will receive power. He's promising to be with them and in them. This is what they're experiencing. Now, Jesus is fulfilling a dream that that each of us have had. And that's to be in two places at the same time. Anybody ever wish they could do that? I know I have. Christ is doing that in giving them the Holy Spirit, leaving them. He's ascending and giving them the Holy Spirit so that he can dwell with each of them simultaneously. 
And not even just with them, the first century dwell with them simultaneously. But stretches back all throughout history and even goes to present day and even future from this moment right now that we're even gathering. I will be with them. I will be in them. Our minds are just blowing right now as we think about what this means in the giving of the Holy Spirit. Have you gotten that question, where is Jesus? I get that question a lot in conversations with both Christian and non-Christian friends of mine. Yeah, but where is he? My seven-year-old asked me that question years ago. Where is Jesus? I guess he was noticing that I was talking quite a bit about this Jesus character, yet where is Jesus? Answer, at the right hand of God. Mark chapter 16, verse 19 says, He was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Where is Jesus? He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It's what theologians call the exaltation of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation. He's enthroned. He's ruling and reigning. That gives you comfort. That gives you new intimacy. That makes me think, wow, someone, he really is in charge. There's an empowerment that's happening here. Hebrews chapter 1-3 is another place. Jesus, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. His work was complete. Next question, where is that? My seven-year-old asked. Where is the right hand of God the Father Almighty? I love Martin Luther's answer to that question. Martin Luther's answer to where is the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Everywhere. Christ reigns, rules everywhere, over all things, over all peoples, and that creates and unlocks and unleashes a new intimacy given to us. This is so because Christ is exercising his ministry to us through the Holy Spirit. Next question, what is Jesus doing there? He's still following the questions, right? Where is Jesus? What is he doing there? Colossians chapter 1 says he's upholding the cosmos is what he's doing there. It says that he's upholding. He not only created, he, Jesus, pre-existing and all eternity, not only did he create, but he's also upholding the entire cosmos. He's competent is what you and I need to take away from this. He's competent. What else is he doing there? He's being your great high priest. That's what Jesus is doing there. Hebrews chapter 4 says we have a great high priest who has entered heaven. Jesus, the son of God. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he didn't sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace when we need it most. What is Jesus doing there? He's praying for you. He's praying for you. Hebrews chapter 7 says this. Therefore, Jesus is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him, and he also lives forever to pray to God on their behalf. 
quick reflection question. How often, how often are we aware of our current existence being up to, pretty much up to, the, the prayers of Jesus on our behalf? This is, this is so powerful to, to embrace this and to remember this. What else is he doing there? He's being your lawyer. He's your attorney. He's your mediator. Hebrews chapter 9 says, He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. See, he's bringing all the righteous requirements that God is requiring of the law. He's bringing all of that, which is his life, so that we might be accepted. He's our attorney. He's our defense attorney. I've taken great pleasure with this one. In those moments where you feel spiritually attacked, in those moments where you're feeling spiritually depressed, and your enemy Satan is hurling accusations all at you, to reply to Satan with something like, go to hell. Go to hell. Go talk to my attorney. My defense attorney is ready to talk to you. His name is Christ the Lord. This is a new intimacy, folks. A new mission also takes place here. The Holy Spirit did come in power on those disciples. And you know what they did? They went out. Or did they say, let's create a missions department? Did they say, um, you know, we shouldn't talk about missions. It offends uh, our tolerance. After all, what business do we have telling people what they should believe? Missions. Uh, or maybe we should have a missions moment once a month. LOL. They went out. They went out. So the Bible is the mission of God. Look at verse 8. I mean, it's just jumping off the page here. You will be my witnesses. You super Christians, that is. Nope, it doesn't say that. You. Who? Who's you? The Greek says you all, y'all. A lot of y'alls in the New Testament because it's meaning a collective you all. You all who are in Christ. You all who are the church. You will be my witnesses. This is going to happen through you. The power here of the ascension of Christ is that it's his continued presence with you and through you. That's what the ascension unlocks for us. He's, he's, He's ascended to scatter us. He gathers us to scatter us. He gathers us so that the gospel, the good news, can always be coming to us, growing in us, and then overflowing through us. And if there's ever any sort of stagnation in that, the gospel is not overflowing through me or through you or through any of us as the church, we should start asking questions. Am I growing in the gospel? I need the gospel to keep coming to me repetitively. In Acts, this is the first time, this book, that we see the people of God collected together as the church. And I'm just saying, I think that we need to redefine our definition of church. We've gone from being a who to a where. It bothers me. We've truncated who we are to a where. You'll hear it in things like, 
I go to church. And I, I know what we need. We go to church. Almost like I go shopping on Thursdays. And we especially hear it whenever we're meeting people who are looking for churches. I mean, what do we call it? Church shopping. We do this. We know this. Matthew's end of the gospel here is something called the Great Commission. Go back and look at Matthew. And if you've been a part of church for any length of time, you've heard of the Great Commission. Matthew records it there in Matthew chapter 28. But guess what? All the other gospel writers have a Great Commission. Every single one of them. Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24, John chapter 20, where he says, As the Father sends me, Jesus speaking, so I send you. And so a dramatic, I believe a dramatic shift is taking place from first century, we know this, first century church and what church meant to what we understand church to be, particularly the Western world regarding church. And maybe you've heard things like this, but if I were to ask people, you were to ask people, hey, what is church? You might hear things like, uh, church is a place where I go. It's a place where I go to meet friends. It's a place where I go get a spiritual tune-up. I've heard these things, by the way. Uh, it's a place where I go to make business contacts. It's a place where I go get morals for the kids. It's a place to find a suitable spouse. I've heard that one. It's a place to go and get married and be buried. Have you even heard that one? It's a place we go to get spiritual stuff. Some people have said. And I'm just trying to say here from Acts and this mission is that it's not a, it's not a place but a people. Church is not a place but a people. The church is a gathering of, of called out people. Called out people sent into mission. Go back with me in this journey through scripture when we were in Genesis. God called Abraham and sent him out. God called Moses and sent him out. God called Israel and sends them out. God calls us and sends us out. Versus religious consumerism. I told you this would be challenging. It challenges all of us in the way that we think about church. In terms of shopping and religious consumerism, we hear the talk. We hear the talk. You know, I, I just think the sermons are too long. Not really connecting with, with the songs. Not really feeling it there. Just keep shopping. I think it's we've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten who we are. It's a people. It's not a place. It's a people called out into mission. That's what the church is. Who does God intend us to be? People sent out on a mission representing this grand story. This good news of the gospel. He says, you will be my witnesses. I love the angels here in this passage. What are you looking at? Why are you still? I mean, this makes us think about, I mean, even the angels there in, in the empty tomb upon the resurrection. Why are you still looking in this empty tomb? He's risen. He's not here. He's alive. Wake up. 
Imagine that walk back. Keep reading the book of Acts. Imagine the walk back. Those disciples wondering, where did he go? What did he say? Those were his last words. Somebody, somebody's a good annotator. What did he say? Well, he didn't say build majestic cathedrals, play nice songs, have good snacks. He says, you will be my witnesses. These are the last words of Jesus. We're just reading the book of Acts here. You will be my witnesses. The greatest sermon we'll ever give is when we don't get to speak. You will be my witnesses. That means at work. When we don't have a microphone. When we're not asked to share our testimony with words, but to live it. You will be my witnesses. When we wake up and we go to work as writers, as tech people, as attorneys, as physicians, as artists, wherever and whatever we do each day. You will be my witnesses, yes, among impatient people. Yes, among hard-to-love people. We go to coffee shops. We, we go to restaurants. And maybe we get treated poorly in those places. You will be my witnesses. That kind of affects the way that you tip, doesn't it? I was struck with that just last week. When we walk through our neighborhood and chat with our neighbors, you will be my witnesses. And even when we go through suffering and our friends are watching how we go through the suffering, you will be my witnesses. In the dating world, in the dating world, hoping to get married, you will be my witnesses. And in our homes, apologizing to our spouses, admitting wrong failure even, you will be my witnesses. And when we volunteer for food delivery, helping those who can't get it for themselves, you will be my witnesses. See, that's a sign of justice and restoration that's to come. Mission is not getting something back. Mission is not about, we've got to increase our numbers. Church is not about numbers, just like church is not about place. It's about people who are called out to be in mission. And please remember, all this is so clearly here uh, written that, that it's all empowered by the Holy Spirit. This isn't your mission. This is my mission. This isn't coming here and let's rah, 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 and let's go get them. This is God's mission. This is God's heart for people. God is on a mission, and it is happening right now. I will tell you, it is happening. It's happening globally right now, the mission of God. It's happening in San Francisco. That is not the question. The question is, will we, will we, this local church and the church at large, will we be the people that God has called into mission? That's our question. Lastly here, there's a new future. Uh, verses 10 and 11, uh, as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here into heaven, staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken away from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. 
This is incredible news, especially when you're having one of those days when it feels like everything is going wrong. Had one of those days lately? Waiting for the other shoe to drop? This gives us hope that that moment that you're going through is not the end of the story. There's a new future for us. That Christ is going to come back. The story doesn't end like that moment that we're in. And it is vicious and it is hard and challenging. And it could be for yourself and you may be thinking, I don't go through stuff like that. I got my stuff together. I plan enough and I'm organized enough. Well, guess what? It's coming soon and or your friend or loved one is going through it. But Christ is telling them, these are his famous last words, and he's telling us, he's going to come back. He's coming back. Revelation 21, last book of the Bible, there's this story of God's city coming down. Christ is coming down. Christ is coming down. It's not us escaping this world and all of its pain and chaos. It's God in the person of Jesus returning to this physical world to renew it, to restore it, to bring back the original beauty and intimacy that we used to have with God and even one another. In conclusion, I ask again, where's Jesus? And what is he doing there? Oh, that's a little kid question. Well, we're like little kids. We're adults in adult clothes. We have adult Cars and homes and things and stuff, really. But we're those same kids, are we not? So the next time you and I ask those questions, where are you, Jesus, and what are you doing there? Let's remember that God is with me. We were singing earlier, breath of God. Well, the word spirit, pneuma, the Greek word there, means breath. God's very breath lives inside of you. If you're a follower of Christ, that's pretty close. And that Jesus is my attorney, and that no one can bring any charge against me. Jesus is my prayer warrior praying for me right now. And that God is good, God is ruling and reigning over all circumstances. And God is calling me and you and us and all y'all. Into mission. Into mission. To neighbors, to family, to co-workers. Not, yes, not to be obnoxious, but to be the continued presence of Jesus in that place. Because church is not a place, it's a people called into mission. Let's pray right now for God's empowerment. God, thank you for calling us into something so much greater than being church consumers. But to be agents of your grace and agents of your kingdom, to be your people sent and mission. Help us see, Lord, each of us, each of us, that we are all a part of this mission. And whenever you come back, Lord Jesus, we will join with others from every language, every nation as we worship you. Jesus, we thank you, the great missionary, the greatest missionary who ever lived, who came here and 
gave his life for us. Send us. Send us. We 